Romans chapter 9, if you would please. <clears throat> he's never late, he's always on time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth a son made of a woman. In the fullness of time, his son is coming again. But Romans chapter 9, kind of shift gears a little bit here. We've been talking about uh, the child of God in the in the churches, and now we're going to look at a little bit at Israel, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Of course, you know, the question arises, what about the promises to Israel? And of course, there's, there's two extremes to this, but, uh, and, and that's what I want to try and uh, look at today. And, uh, you know, God is not finished with Israel. The church or the churches are not Israel. Promises to the church are not to Israel, and the promises of Israel are not for the churches. But anyway, let's, let's, we'll try and try and clear all that up. Anyway, Revelation chapter nine, verse one: I say the truth in Christ; I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is... They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto, the young, elder, said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we then say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have a compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and my, my, and my name might be declared through all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then to, to me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, art, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay, and of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another to dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. And as he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, 
Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been a Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not obtained attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. So I've titled the message this morning, The Privileges of Israel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. Thank you for the promises that you do give us in your word. and Thank you for uh, the instruction that we can uh, encourage and strengthen and challenge ourselves. And, and Father, to understand these truths uh, concerning your people Israel and, and, and Father, and our relationship to you as churches, as, as, as Christians. So, Father, I pray that you help us understand the distinctions between the two. Give us wisdom concerning the times that we're living in, and even as we see the raising up of the nation of Israel once again. And, Father, we know that, that you will yet fulfill your promises to them. So, Lord, just give us wisdom and understanding. Help us to realize the privileges we have in our Lord Jesus Christ in this day and time which we're living, and to use them for your honor and your glory, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I think about Israel, there are two extremes that are prevalent in our world today in relation to Israel. There are many, and I say many, that teach that Israel has been rejected and replaced because of their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Um, This is called by most replacement theology. It is taught by almost all of the all-millennial view of eschatology, which means that they believe the the thousand-year reign of Christ is from heaven. In other words, it's while he's in heaven. It's on earth while he's in heaven. And that that thousand-year reign of Christ is now or has been sometime in the past. And I'll give you an illustration of this. I was talking to an Amishman one time, and I got to talking about eschatology. By the way, Amish believe in replacement theology. We got talking about eschatology or last things. And, and I got talking about the thousand-year reign. He said, well, that happened back in the Dark Ages. I said, you're telling me that during the Dark Ages, when the Catholic Church was murdering Christians by the millions, that God was reigning on earth? Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, that also means that Satan's bound. And you're telling me that Satan was bound while Christians are being murdered on earth? He said, yeah. So, I couldn't quite fathom that, that anybody would see be, be so blind. But, you know, they believe that Satan is bound during those thousand years, and so he was bound sometime, dur- you know, a lot of them believe it was during the, during the Middle Ages, which was a t- great time of persecution of, of God's people. Uh, Baptists suffered by the millions. And, 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 and they say that he was bound then, and that allowed for the spreading of the gospel. Well, you know, if I, if I read history correctly, you, know, you want to call it Christian history or Baptist history, 
ever since the days of Christ there has been persecution somewhere in the world or over most of the world against God's people, even though the gospel has still spread. But there's always been persecution. Satan has not been bound. Not been bound. But that's what they teach. Uh, these also have also been a source of anti-Semitism throughout the world, throughout history. It is taught in some form by many denominations and cults. Um, for example, and by the way, one of the greatest proponents that was used by the Nazis was guess who? Martin Luther. Martin Luther... At first, he encouraged uh, protection and safety to the Jews, but then because of their rejection of the gospel, he became very vehement against them. Uh, he says, this, this article says this, and he had a book he wrote on the Jews and their lies. In 1543, Luther published this book, which he says that Jews, quote, are base, whoring people, that is, no people of God, and their boasts of lineage, circumcision, law must be accounted as filth. They are full of devil's feces, while they wallow in it like swine. The synagogue was a defiled bride, yes, an incorrigible whore and an evil slut. He argues that their synagogues and schools be set on fire, their prayer books destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, homes raised, and property and money be confiscated. They should be shown no mercy or kindness, afforded no legal protection, and these poisonous and venomed worms should be drafted into forced labor, expelled for all time. He also seems to advocate their murder, writing, We are at, no, at fault in not slaying them. Luther claims that Jewish history was assailed by much heresy and that Christ swept away the Jewish heresy and goes on to do so, as it still does daily before our eyes. Um, you know, so things like this that he wrote which, by the way, the Nazis quoted and used over and over again to justify their persecution of the Jewish people. Um, but prior to that, you know, he had good teaching on this. The Catholic Church has always taught replacement theology. Now, they would try to say today that they are in defense of Israel or full with Israel, but but the, that has never really been the case historically. In fact, this article, and even to this day, uh, this article came from, it's called uh, Catholic Churches Using Replacement Theology to Deny Divinity of Temple Mount by Adam Berkowitz. This is July 27, 2017. And part of it says, quote, in an ongoing con between Israel and the Palestinians, the Vatican has consistently expressed a pro-Palestinian bias overlooking the violence and terror perpetrated on Israel. Pope Francis referred to the Palestinian Authority, President Mohammed Abbas, a major inciter of violence, as an angel of peace, and has insisted that Islam is not associated with violence. The Vatican has also recognized the Palestinian claim to Jerusalem by placing its embassy in the uh, PA in East Jerusalem and its embassy to Israel in Tel Aviv. So the, the, the uh, Vatican put its embassy uh, in East Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, the, and, so, and then it says this, quote, 
officially the Vatican no longer adheres to strict replacement theology. In 1965, under Pope Paul VI, the Second Vatican Council released the monumental Nostra Aetate document signaling a shift away from replacement thinking. However, the belief remains a core aspect of Catholicism for many. Uh, so, you know, Catholics have all consistently taught, that's where they get their lots of their doctrines, the justification for priesthood, all that stuff. Uh, a lot of that comes out of the Old Testament and the, the ceremonial law of the nation of Israel. Um, the, the cults. Um, David Reagan, in an article entitled The Era of Replacement Theology, he says this, that <clears throat> this viewpoint is held by most of the old mainline liberal denominations like Methodists, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians. Also held by some conservative groups like Churches of Christ and the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana. Advocates of the view can be found among Southern Baptists, although most Baptists reject it. And uh, also, by the way, as I mentioned, the Amish adhere to that. Uh, there has even been uh, recently, I'm not sure exactly when it was, a delegation of Amish. Um, it's kind of funny. The article said they... they uh, contradicted their own beliefs and boarded a plane and went to Israel and apologized to the Israelis because they you know, were, were uh, against them and said they were replacing Israel. But anyway, uh, the Mormons, the Mormons have always taught this philosophy. They call it that they, in fact, the Mormons claim that they are the ten lost tribes of Israel. They refer to themselves as Ephraim. And this is a this is what I written by a Mormon guy. He's called uh, Gramps. A.S. Gramps is the is the, the is the uh, website. Does the Mormon Church teach and ascribe to replacement theology? He says not really, but really. He's, it's like they want both sides of the story. But anyway, um, he says this quote. This naturally leads us to the next issue, which is whether the promises of a land inheritance and other old system Old Testament promises are more spiritual than literal. After all, Paul does seem to spiritualize Abraham's land promise into a metaphor from heaven. Hmm. I'm not sure how he gets that. But anyway, instead we take a page out of Nephi's book. That's one of their bishops or prophets. Um, and see that it was a representation of things both temporal and spiritual. So they're going to take both sides here. Uh, and it, it gives a quotation there. But sure, the promise of an inheritance should remind us that we are seeking citizenship in a divine kingdom, but that doesn't take away the land that's here right now. Joseph Smith made this a focus of the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple. He asked that, quote, Jerusalem, that Jerusalem from this hour may begin to be redeemed, and the yoke of bondage may begin to be broken off from the house of David, and the children of Judah may begin to return to the lands which thou didst give to Abraham their father. That's Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 109, verses 62 to 64 of you know, the Book of Mormon. The, lo the Lord hath already taught Joseph, Joseph Smith, that is, that Ephraim's inheritance was Zion, quote, in America. Their Zion is America. While Judah's was in Jerusalem. But now the time was... Now the time was ripe for more. Days after Joseph, that is Joseph Smith, prayed for the gathering of Judah to the land of his inheritance, that Israel returning to their land, Moses conferred on him the keys of the gathering of Israel. So Moses conferred on Joseph Smith the keys of gathering the lost ten tribes to Israel, which is 
America. Keep that in mind. He's referring to America here. Um, in 1841, that key was exercised in behalf of Judah. Apostle Orson Hyde was given a special assignment to go to the Holy Land dedicated for the gathering information on that mission. Modern revelation teaches that literal Ephraim has a literal land inheritance in Zion, which is America. It also teaches that the literal Judah has a literal land inheritance in Jerusalem. So, so that, you know, they, they really teach it. And they spiritualize some of it, but they, they claim that they are the lost ten tribes of Israel. However, Revelation chapter 7 very clearly spells out the, the, ten, the twelve tribes of Israel, and they are true Israelites. They are not Mormons. So that's, that's this replacement theology. That's one side. But there are others that teach that because God's chosen people, that is a nation, they are God's chosen people, we should support them financially as Christians. So this is the other extreme. So in one extreme, you have these groups that are saying that they are the modern Israel, that the promises to Israel are now to them, you know, the Catholics and Mormons and Lutherans and all of them. But then you have these over here, evangelicals, who say that because Israel is are God's chosen people, which they are as a nation, we should financially support them like we would support missionaries. This view is made popular by John Hagee, pastor of Corner Church, Cornerstone Church in, in uh, Texas. In his, book, in his book, Defense of Israel, he says there's not one verse of scripture that says Jesus came to be the Messiah. I don't know if he never read the book of John or what. The problem we see is, yes, Israel is God's cho- are God's chosen people. And we're going to see that, that God's not finished with them. But Israel as a nation is living in rank apostasy, in unbelief, in continual rejection of their Messiah, and we are, as Christians are not to support such financially. We're not to. I believe as a nation, we ought to defend Israel. But as Christians... We ought not to support them financially. We're supporting. You'd be supporting apostasy and rejection of Christ. That's what you'd be supporting. Well, so let's look. As we think about that, let's look at uh, the the privileges to Israel and and the promises to them. First of all, in in verse 4, it says, Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? Now, <clears throat> the word to whom the words to whom pertaineth the adoption. It doesn't say to whom did pertain. No, it says to whom pertaineth. It's present tense. It's present tense. In other words, they still pertain to them. And he gives eight things considering the privileges of Israel. First of all, the adoption. You know, this was a national adoption. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, when he refers to our adoption, it's, it's talking about an indi- as individuals, the adoption we receive as individuals, as children of God. But Israel was adopted as a nation, as a group of people. It was corporate. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says, For thou art an holy people in the Lord thy God. 
The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 14.2 For thou art a holy people in the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. In this, uh, when the Lord met with Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 8, he says, And thy servant in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered, nor counted for multitude. And then in 2 Chronicles 6, 6, the Lord said, But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and I have chosen David to be my, over my people Israel. So, you know, this, this choosing began with the calling of Abraham. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, uh, in, in verses 2 and 3, I'm not sure that's right. I think it's Acts chapter 2. Yeah, maybe it's chapter 22. Got the wrong reference there. Um, no, that's not right either. Well, somewhere in the book of Acts. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I think it's in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, yes. And he said, men and brethren... <coughs> And fathers, hearken, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show thee. So it began with the calling of Abraham. And God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham obeyed him. And we not knowing whether he went. And of course he came into the land of Canaan. Uh, so it, has, it started with the calling of Abraham, calling out a people for his name. And they had a specific purpose in the world. Uh, Isaiah 43, 10 through 12 says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and have showed when there is no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. So Israel was chosen as a nation to be a witness to the nations. To the nations. So to them pertains the adoption as a nation. To them pertains the glory. The glory. Of course, this refers to the special manifestation of God to Israel, which demonstrated His presence among them. You know, the Shekinah glory clap. Uh, that traveled with them in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. Numbers 9, 16. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. So this cloud remained with them in the wilderness. And of course, you know, even you think about the the, the Lord appearing to them in Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 9.15 says, So I turned and came down from the mount, and the mount burned with fire, and the two tables of covenant were in my hands. So God revealed himself to Israel in a way that he did to no other nations. You know, they got to see the manifestation of the presence of God with them daily in the wilderness. And then daily in the tabernacle, the cloud came down and covered the tabernacle after they pulled the staves out, as we saw, uh, uh, I guess it was Sunday night, or Wednesday, Thursday night. And, and of course, and then uh, in the temple as well. 
So the, God manifested his glory to his people, Israel. So them pertaineth the covenant or the adoption, the glory, and the covenants. The covenants. Now, this has nothing to do with the Mormon covenants. This is covenants made to Abraham, to David, and to the people of Israel themselves. These covenants were declarations of God's plan and promises to Israel as a nation. And some of these covenants are eternal. They are unconditional. For example, the Abrahamic covenant. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. God makes some promises to Abraham. And these promises are eternal. They're, they're unconditional. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And these shall all the families of the earth. Be blessed. So he promised Abraham a great name, which he has. Almost all religions want to claim Abraham as their father. All of them. He has a great name. A great nation. The nation of Israel was a great nation. It was the glory of nations for a time period. And will yet be. Will yet be. And through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because through him comes the Messiah. He comes from the family of Abraham. He was also promised land. Notice again verse 7, or verse 1. The end of the verse says, Unto a land that I will show thee. Verse 7 says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Again in chapter 13, you know, he repeats this promise over and over again throughout the book of Genesis and in other places. Chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed, notice, forever. Forever. This land is yours, and to your seed Forever. That land over there is theirs. Given to them by God. Go to chapter 17. Chapter 17, again, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. See, this covenant is an everlasting one. To be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Uh, even uh, uh, second, or second, uh, First Chronicles 16. He, you know, again, it's repeated in other places. First Chronicles 16. And... Verses 15 through 18, this covenant is repeated. First Chronicles 16, verse 15. 
Be ye mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, even the covenant which he had made with Abraham, and of his oath unto Isaac, hath confirmed the same for Jacob for law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying unto thee, Will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance? So this is an unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham, that in him and all the families of the earth be blessed, and that really, spiritually that includes us as Gentiles through Christ. But the land specifically was given as an everlasting covenant to the Jewish people. It's unconditional. There's also the Davidic covenant. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2 in verse 7. You know, and these covenants do not pertain to the churches. Somebody said it this way: Israel is an earth. Consider earthly and the promises to uh, consider Israel as an earthly people and their promises as earthly, and that's basically true. Consider the churches or Christians as their promises heavenly. And, you know, this is kind of the distinction. But anyway, Second uh, Samuel seven verse twelve through seventeen. The Lord makes a covenant with David, and again, it's an everlasting covenant. This has to do with a kingdom and a throne. Abraham has to do with a family and, and a, a land. David, the covenant with David has to do with a kingdom and a throne. In verse 12, it says, And when thy days shall be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall spread out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, verse 12 refers specifically to Solomon. But verse 13 extends beyond Solomon because it says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it goes beyond Solomon's days. And then he says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I would chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, and thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So you have an unconditional eternal covenant here. The only conditional part is whether David's descendants would occupy the throne continually, which they did not. He said if he, if, he, if he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men. Israel has been chastened and even driven out of their land temporarily and off their throne temporarily. They have no king in Jerusalem. That being without a king is a temporary thing. Because one of these days, their king's going to return. King Jesus. In fact, go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we see the fulfillment of this when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and announced that she would be with child. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Luke 1, 31, says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God, notice, shall give unto him the throne of his father David, 
and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So this is a direct reference to the fact that Jesus one day is going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He's going to rule over the entire earth. I believe we're going to rule and reign with him. Thousand year reign of Christ. And then Satan will be banned. So as we think about that, there's two conclusions we have to conclude then from these covenants that God made with Israel. Israel must be preserved as a nation and brought back to the land, which they are now. They are back in the land. And secondly, David's son, the Lord Jesus, must return to earth and an earthly kingdom set up over which Christ reigns. And of course, in Revelation chapter 19 and 20, that is described for us. And it's of course prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we have to conclude then that God has not replaced Israel. His promise to them are not to the churches or vice versa. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.32, giving none offense, neither to the Jew, nor to the Gentile. So, nor to the Jew, the unsaved, or to the church of God. They're distinctly different and have different places and different promises. So they have these covenants. To them was given the covenants. To them was given the giving of the law, the law of Moses, as we read on for a divine standard of righteousness, which is the greatest standard of human government upon which our government itself was established. Think of it. Two tables of stone written with the finger of God given to them. The first table, you know, that you can divide the Ten Commandments into two parts. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God, which you can't legislate. You know, that's what, that's what state churches do. They try to legislate how you worship God. No man should be free to worship God according to his own conscience. That's what we as Baptists believe. We, 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 we are to be free to worship God as we desire or seem fit. I mean, if you want to worship God wrongly, you have that right without being persecuted. That's what the Bible teaches of course, state churches, you know, that's, they've tried to legislate those first four. You know, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and so on and so forth. The second table has to do with our relationship with man. Thou shalt not kill. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not uh, uh, covet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It has to do with our relationship with man. And those we establish, from those laws, we establish laws of the land to govern people. Of course, this law was a divine standard which revealed God's standard of righteousness and demonstrates to us also our need of a divine intervention, in other words, a substitute to redeem us from our sins. You know, 1 John 2 and verses 1 and 2, the apostle said, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So they had the giving of law, but the law was never meant to save them or us. 
It was a schoolmaster. It was to show us our need of a Savior and to bring us to Christ. But think, they had the giving of the law. They had the service of God. Again, verse 4, the glory, the, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law and the service of God, the sacrificial and ceremony system of the tabernacle and the temple, all of which foreshadow or picture the coming of Christ and the person and work of Christ. And again, this was peculiar to Israel. No other nation had this privilege to have pictures in their worship that, that told them or demonstrated to them that one day there was going to be a Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. You know, in the tabernacle, the brazen altar where the sacrifices were slain speaks of the cross of Christ dying for our sin. Death of animals continually, which could, not, could never wash away sin. Hebrews 8 and 9 talks much about this. The laver, which was the next, next uh, 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 item in the, in the tabernacle, the, the uh, laver, uh, speaks, was for washing of the hands of the priests in their, in their ministry, and it speaks of cleansing from defilement. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it speaks of cleansing from, from defilement. The lampstand, when you went inside the curtain of the first uh, place in the, in the tabernacle, the lampstand made of pure gold, the lamp gave light inside a dark room. The lampstand was a symbol of Christ being the light of the world. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The, bre- the, the table of showbread, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The altar of incense speaks of the prayers of the saints. And our, our Savior interceding for us. See, all these things picture and foreshadow our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Revelation 8.3 says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Even the veil, you know that veil that was rent from top to bottom? The one in Solomon's temple was made of fine linen white and clean the righteousness linen speaks of humanity but intertwined or woven in that linen were gold wires like thread and gold speaks of deity so in that curtain you could see the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ the God man in the curtain You know, if you study the tabernacle, you'll see Christ all over the place because it all speaks of him. Now, the outside of it was ugly. It was just a drab-looking tent. It was covered with badger skins. Skins. What does Isaiah 53 say? There's no beauty that we should desire him. But yet, the Bible also says he is the altogether lovely one. See, to them, to the children of Israel, what a privilege they had to see all this beforehand. To be given vivid pictures of the Christ, the Messiah, that would come. Not only did they have the service of God, but they had the promises of God. The messianic and millennial promises which revealed God's intention to extend blessing to all the nations of the world through them. Look at Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. 
you know, in the midst of all the judgment that Jeremiah pronounces, he gives these little inserts about the glory that's to come of the nation of Israel uh, to the remnant that will be saved in the last days. In Jeremiah 33, verse 14, he says, Behold, the days come, saith Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch. Who's the branch? It's Christ. The branch of righteousness, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and this is the name wherewith ye shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Well, let me ask something. Does Judah and Jerusalem dwell safely today? No. They're under constant threat and attack. And it says when they dwell safely, it has the idea of at ease, no fearing anyone to harm them. That's coming. That's coming. Ezekiel also speaks about it. Uh, let's, let's read on here, verse 17. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never, notice, David shall never want a man to sit upon a throne of the house of Israel, neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and do sacrifice continually. In other words, they're not going to want because he's going to be there. The, the son of David, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be there forever to sit on that throne. Um, Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 25, or 28, 25, and 26, Thus saith the Lord God, When I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered, and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the heathen, then shall they dwell in the land that I have given to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell safely therein, and shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell with confidence when I have executed judgment upon all those that despise them round about, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Of course, Zechariah describes this time also in Zechariah 14. So the promises, they were given these promises of the messianic and millennial reign of Christ that is yet to come. And Israel again will be the glory of the nations. And then seven, number seven, whose are the fathers? Again in verse four, whose are the fathers? The national heritage of great characters. No nation can boast of such choice ancestry as the patriarchs of Israel. And notice said, whose are? Those are your patriarchs. You'll see this phrase in the Bible many times. Remember thy servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus used it in Luke 2, 20, verse 37. Now the dead are raised. Even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not the God of the dead, but of the living. Stephen quoted it in Acts chapter 7, verse 32, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. You know, many others try to claim them. Muslims try to claim Abraham. They don't claim Isaac and Jacob. Because they can't. But no, they, these fathers are particularly peculiar to Israel. They have a great ancestry. 
and of course kings in that line too, David and, and Solomon. And then, and then finally, of whom Christ came, of whom Christ ta- came, God over who is over all, God bless forever, Amen. Uh, you know, of whom Christ came, they they were a national means of being the physical channel through whom Christ came. One commentator said this quote: "The fathers were exclusively Jewish, Jewish, but not Jesus." He came the Jewish way, but belongs to the world. The Jewish lineage of Jesus goes back to Abraham, uh, through Abraham to Adam, and is therefore racial as well as national. You cannot compress Christ into a small national mold, since in the intention of God, he came for a world service, unquote. So it was through whom, of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. But he died for the sins of the world. The salvation of Israel is not universal, meaning that every Jew will be saved. You know, some people that think oh, every Jew is going to be saved. No, no, they're not. In fact, look at verses 6 through 13. Not as the word of the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because are they, they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but an Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, there's a play on words here. Notice verse 6 again. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. In other words, what Paul's saying is, to be a true Jew means you accept the Messiah. You accept the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not all Israel. You see, it was their choice to reject Christ, and he gives illustrations here, just as it was Pharaoh's choice to go after the children of Israel. Now, Calvinists like this passage, especially verses 9 through down through verse 23, 24. Because, you know, if you don't read it carefully, you don't understand a lot of things behind it, you'll, you'll think that God used his son to be saved and chooses his son to be lost. God didn't choose Israel to be saved. Understand that just because God chose Israel as a nation for himself doesn't mean that all Israelites were saved. There were many that died in the wilderness that were lost. Hebrews talks about those not being mixed with faith. You know, God gives all men a choice, just as he gave Pharaoh a choice. But Pharaoh started out by saying, at first it says of Pharaoh, he knew not the God of Joseph. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Then in chapter 5, verse 2, Moses comes to him and said, You let my people go, that we may serve him in the wilderness. And this is what Pharaoh said. Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey him? Who's God that's going to tell me what to do? That's what he said. You see, if you choose to reject God or oppose God as Pharaoh did, God's power will be demonstrated when you are defeated in your attempt to thwart God's plan. And that's what you see in the life of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was trying to attempt to thwart or divert God's plan and program. There is no man that's going to 
subvert God's plan or program. There are many others who tried. There are Jewish people that tried it. Remember when Jehoshaphat joined Ahab, and as a result of that, his son married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And then when his son was killed uh, by Jehu executing, executing judgment on the house of Ahab, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, reigned over the land for a while, and she killed all the seed royal except Jehoash, I think his name was. What was his name? It wasn't Josiah. That was later. Huh? Joash. I think it was Joash. And his nurse hid him in the bedchamber. What was that? That was an attempt to wipe out the seed royal. It's an attempt to wipe out the seed royal. You aren't going to divert God's plan, but it, didn't, it wasn't completed. And eventually, Athaliah was put to death. See, you don't overthrow God. And Pharaoh was attempting to overthrow God. And if you think you can thwart God's plan or go and oppose God and succeed, you're living in a false dream. So it wasn't that God made Pharaoh follow the, or follow the children of Israel into the Red Sea. It was of his own choosing. He was attempting to overthrow God's plan and purpose. It was not that God hated. In fact, it says here that Esau have I loved and Jacob, or, or Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And of course, we have to understand that in Bible, in the context of scriptures, it's a comparative term. It is, it is not that God hated Esau as we think of hate. It's a comparative term. Luke 14, he says, in verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So if we're going to take that uh, at you know, face value there for, for just what it says without comparing it with other scriptures, I'm supposed to hate my wife and my children. But see, the Bible says elsewhere, husbands love your wives. No, it's a comparative term. We're supposed to love God more than we love them. And God loved Jacob. And there was a reason for that. Esau was a profane man. Esau had no interest in spiritual things. Now, how God loved Jacob, I don't know. I've wondered that a few times. But Jacob had an interest in spiritual things. And eventually, Jacob came to know the Lord and gave up his wicked ways. But Esau had no interest in spiritual. In fact, the Bible says he despised his birthright. You see, the Bible says that a remnant of Israel will be saved. As, it'll be a remnant as a nation. Many of them are going to perish. Notice verse 27, and I've got to conclude here. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. You know, we could draw a comparison there that there are, as the sand of the sea, Christians in the world. Quote, unquote, Christians in the world. But I would say to you, out of that, quote, unquote, 
Christians in the world, a remnant, are truly saved. A remnant. You see, the children of Israel have not been replaced by the churches or the church, as many call it, the church, the universal church idea. You know, there are great advantages to being a Jew. But we have also great advantages. You know, we live in a nation founded on liberty, the largest group of religious people at the time of the war for independence were Baptists seeking religious liberty. They petitioned their government leaders for the Bill of Rights, which is based upon the law of God. So we can peacefully assemble. To us, as churches, has been given the scriptures. We have the privilege to attend a church of our choosing. We're not coerced. Attend a church where the word of God is expanded and taught, where we are encouraged and warned of the dangers of sin and the judgment of Almighty God for sin. But yet in our land, many churches are like, have like Israel had prophets in the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said this about the prophets in his day. Prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee. They have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. In other words, they haven't spoken about your sin and the judgment of God. They just preach smooth and positive things. It made everything sound just so wonderful. And I haven't pointed you to the, haven't confronted you about your sin and warned you of its consequences and the need to get right with God. You know, that's America we live in. That's what's popular. And just as God judged Israel. God is judging America. We see it everywhere. But Israel had great privileges and still does. Well, so do you and I. But what did they do with their privileges? That's the question. You know what they did? They threw it all away. They just threw it all away. What are you and I doing with ours? God has given to us exceeding great and precious promises that we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. May we avail ourselves of those privileges that God has given to us in our day, in our time. We must serve the Lord in our generation. Let's use the privileges that he has given to us to further the gospel. As Paul said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. His burden was to reach his own people with the gospel. And we need to continue to endeavor to reach others with the gospel. Yes, Israel was a privileged people, and we are as well. Let's avail ourselves of those privileges.